begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. Uh, we're excited to be back on the pod. I'm Tommy Binion with the Heritage Foundation, joined by Emily Vanderbush, also with the Heritage Foundation. Emily, have we got a great show today or what? We do. You know, last week we kind of focused on the domestic agenda of uh, President Trump. This week we're taking it abroad. We, we are. We're, we're going to have an international flair, and, and flair is the right word for Dennis right. Rodman, I flair think. Flair is definitely the right word for Dennis Rodman. Uh, but first, let me tell you about our mission here on Mass Ave. We want to bring uh, the best brains in Washington and the most interesting facts in those brains straight to you via the podcast. Um, you know, as I said last week, Heritage has about 100 of the most interesting researchers uh, in the country doing some cutting-edge work here, um, and, and it's our mission to expose that to you. So welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. Um, if you like what you hear, please uh, check us out on iTunes. Hit that subscribe button, when uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Have we ever gone into the background of, uh, of Mass Ave, the, the background of the name of the show? Well, we can always revisit it. I, yeah, I think so. So Mass Ave is, you know, the location of the Heritage Foundation, which is steps from Capitol Hill, as you might have heard in the intro in the past. You know, steps makes it sound really close, and we are. That's We're true. only about a half block, but it's 95 degrees in Washington this week. So That's a long walk. Our offices are probably closer to Capitol Hill than any in Washington, and I got to say, it is... I can't get from one place to the other uh, without sweating through my suit this week. It's true. Summer has officially arrived here in D.C. Well, uh, summer has arrived here in D.C., and I think it's also summer over in North Korea. We could ask Dennis Rodman that question. That's true, because Dennis Rodman has also arrived in North Korea. <laughs> We're going to get to all sorts of interesting things about Dennis Rodman and North Korea. Here was Bruce Klinger. Uh, Emily, tell us about Bruce. Yeah, so Bruce is a senior research fellow on Northeast Asia here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, his specialty is obviously Korean and Japanese affairs. Uh, the interesting thing about Bruce is that from 1996 to 2001, he was CIA. He was, excuse me, the CIA's deputy division chief for Korea. Uh, so I think he probably has a lot of background knowledge that he can weigh in on this. Well, Bruce, welcome to Mass Ave. We're, we're certainly glad to have you, and we've got an interesting topic ahead of us. Uh, let's start with, um, you know, obviously the news is focused on this. Dennis Rodman in North Korea makes for good media fodder. But, but tell us what's really important about this story. Tell us uh, what's driving you to care about it. Well, it, it's yet another twist, a bizarre twist for those of us who follow North Korea. Um, you know, one would normally just dismiss it as, you know, a narcissistic trip by a, a you know, retired basketball player, uh, as we did when he traveled during uh, Obama's time uh, as president. And that was, I think he made four trips. Uh, but the thing that's making this even more strange is there have been rumors for the last several weeks that a friend of President Trump's would be meeting with North Koreans. And that would be separate from what's called the Track 1.5 meetings, which is former government officials meeting with current North Korean officials, and I just participated in one of those uh, in Sweden a couple weeks ago. Uh, but, you know, is this is Dennis Rodman President Trump's special envoy? Uh, it certainly would be strange, but both have described each other as a friend. And obviously Rodman was on two different uh, episodes or two different seasons of Trump's show, The Apprentice. 
Uh, so do you think that Dennis Rodman is going to be trying to free any of the American hostage, hostages? Excuse me. Well, he has said that he's he's not there to, to free them. Uh, and in the past, when he was there, he actually criticized the actions of one of the Americans uh, who was in captivity, uh, seemingly blaming him for his actions. So uh, right now, it's, it's very much up in the air, whether it's just yet another trip by a bizarre character. Or, or whether he's carrying a message from Trump or thinks he's carrying a message for Trump. Uh, so it, it's, it's yet a, another odd thing. But you know, on, a, on a broader focus, uh, right now we, we feel like we, we know what President Trump's policies uh, towards North Korea will be. Uh, in my discussions with Trump officials, it seems to have five main components. The, the main one and where the emphasis will be is on pressure, the need to increase sanctions and targeted financial measures on North Korea for its repeated violations, not only of UN resolutions, but of US law. And uh, the second part would be re-strengthening the US military, try to increase the budget to the Defense Department uh, to offset some of the degradations in US military capabilities the last several years due to the budget cuts to the Pentagon. The third component is augmenting ballistic missile defense. And that's not only the deployment of the THAAD missile defense system uh, that is in work right now, but also increasing funding to some of the more strategic missile defense systems. Uh, the fourth is a, a willingness to continue to seek meetings uh, diplomat to diplomat with North Korea. Uh, the U.S. has repeatedly tried to have meetings, but it's always been North Korea that rejected them. Uh, they closed what's called the New York Channel, where the two governments talk to each other through the U.N. missions in New York. Uh, North Korea was the one that literally refuses to pick up the phone in the joint security area, which uh, straddles the demilitarized zone. And the fifth component is, although a willingness to have our diplomats meet, no rush to go back to negotiations as long as North Korea refuses to accept the basic premise of them. Bruce, a lot of us take the North Korean threat very seriously. I think um, Americans are paying very close attention to that threat. There's a, a new development seemingly once every couple of weeks or once a month. You're called on to analyze those threats on cable news and, and, and by the U.S. government and certainly on in your capacity here at Heritage on a regular basis. Um, the, the, the most recent bit of news is the development, the advancements that we've made in missile defense. Um, how much does that change the threat? How happy should we be about that? As an American, I, I'm, I'm really pleased with, with our display of, of defense prowess. But what's your take on that? Well, the, the recent ground-based interceptor test uh, was successful and you know is, is reassuring. And, it, and it's of the, uh, the same type of the 44 or so ground-based interceptors that we have deployed to Alaska um, and California to defend the United States against a North Korean ICBM attack. Uh, the numbers are too small to defend against a Russian or Chinese attack, and the U.S. government has said that. He said they're really intended only for deterring rogue regimes such as North Korea or Iran. So the the successful test is is reassuring, and it's it's part of the broader U.S. system of uh, strategic as well as tactical system. So uh, the THAAD missile defense system I mentioned earlier is a, a theater level 
level or a, a sort of a local level of defense, and that's to defend uh, U.S. forces in Korea as well as the South Korean citizens against a North Korean missile attack, which could have nuclear or chemical or biological weapons on it. Uh, then there are additional systems in Japan to defend Japan and the United States forces there. So uh, ballistic missile defense is part of the overall U.S. strategy. It's, you know, we hope that increased pressure and an offer of diplomacy or engagement uh, will bring North Korea back to the table in a meaningful way, though there's not a lot of optimism for that. So you have to have sufficient defenses for yourself and your allies as, as sort of your fallback position. I love the phrase, hitting a bullet with a bullet. It's just such <laughs> uh, powerful imagery that makes you, I think, uh, proud of our capabilities as an American. Is this threat in North Korea, you know, we've got the, the weird story about Dennis Rodman. We've certainly got engagement from the Trump administration. We've got progress on both sides being made with, with military capabilities. Is this threat going to change much over the next four years? Well, it, it's sort of yes and no. And, and yes, in that North Korea may finally achieve a capability of hitting the United States uh, with a nuclear weapon. But I, but I say no in that for those of us who have been following it for a long time, uh, 24 years in my case, uh, it's not some sudden advancement or, or sudden unexpected development. We've been watching this for, for years or decades. I, I was involved in a, a what's called a national intelligence estimate when I was at CIA in 1999. And we predicted that by 2015, uh, the North Koreans would have the capability of hitting the U.S. with an ICBM. So it's something that has been long in work, long predicted, but sometimes comes as a surprise to those who haven't been following it on a daily basis. Uh, so let's kind of revisit the uh, diplomacy aspect. What is the role that some of the other countries in the region like South Korea and Japan play in that? Well, e each country, uh, particularly our allies, uh, along with China and Russia, who were other members, uh, along with North Korea, the six-party talks, you know, each one has their national interests, their priorities, their objectives. So that was one of the reasons why the U.S. felt that we shouldn't just address the North Korean nuclear threat on a bilateral basis, as we had in a 1994 agreement called the agreed framework. You know, we thought that because every country has its interests, that they should all have a seat at the table. You know, unfortunately, the six-party talks failed uh, as uh, previous agreements had. You know, it, North Korea signed four international agreements to promising never to build nuclear weapons. They all failed, uh, given uh, North Korean violations. And then we had four subsequent agreements where North Korea promised to give up the weapons they promised never to build in the first place. Those all failed. So we've had two-party talk, three-party talks, four-party talks, six-party talks. Uh, they all failed. Uh, South Korea, for its part, has had 240 inter-Korean agreements, obviously not all nuclear-related, but those all fail to induce political and economic reform as well as uh, moderate North Korea's belligerent behavior. Uh, and then Japan has tried on a number of cases to or a number of instances of trying to reach out to North Korea to reach agreements, and those collapsed as well. So, you know, right now we see kind of a, I guess, a new cottage industry, it seems, of you know, we should try something new like talking to North Korea or negotiating with them. And, you know, we've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and it didn't work. And 
you know, so we, we need to be aware of the repeated attempts at, at diplomacy and negotiations that haven't, haven't worked. So that's why many of us feel we need to more fully implement U.S. law, uh, no longer give, in essence, immunity to Chinese and North Korean violators from our law. Um, President Trump has talked a good game like Obama did. Uh, Obama claimed North Korea was the most heavily sanctioned, the most cut off nation on earth and that was simply flat out wrong. The US had done things to other countries including Iran and Belarus and Burundi that we hadn't done to North Korea. Uh, so far, Trump has talked about maximum pressure, but he continues to pull the U.S. punches. Uh, he has yet to distinguish his policy from that of President Obama's. Uh, he seemed to be moving towards implementing what's called secondary sanctions on Chinese violators. Um, and yet after the summit with Chinese President Xi Jinping, he reversed himself and now is putting on hold enforcing U.S. law and sanctioning Chinese violators of our law. Well, Bruce, our, our mission here on the podcast is is to bring the really interesting uh, work that, that the researchers at, at Heritage are doing, and you certainly have done that. Um, your take on the North Korea issue is, is, is interesting and it's informed, and we really appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. So Dennis Rodman's over there. He, he may or may not be a special envoy from the Trump administration. Um, we're not sure. More, more is sure to develop on that story. Uh, but it's certainly nice to have, um, to have the reassurance that, uh, that we have a, an appropriate missile defense, uh, a, a Star Wars futuristic um, ability. We're excited about that. But from the, from the international scene back to, back to the good old swamp. Back to Washington, D.C. Yeah. So, Tommy, you work frequently with uh, folks on the Hill. So I thought maybe this would be— I'm a swamp creature. You are a swamp creature. I'm an alligator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's focus a little bit more on what's going on in D.C., specifically the Hill, um, and what I guess we in the past have called Heritage on the Hill. So give us a little bit of a preview of what to expect in the coming weeks. Well, here's one thing that's going on. Inside the Congress this week, there are 30 hearings on appropriations. So appropriations, that's the annual spending bills. Uh, here's how it's meant to work. Uh, the president submits a budget to the Congress. The Congress writes their own budget, uh, passes it through the House and Senate. Um, it, it, it includes top line numbers, amounts we're going to spend on certain activities, and it includes um, you know, policy prescriptions, not, not exact authorizations like you would see in a, in a big bill, but uh, a description of the policies the House and Senate are trying to achieve. Once the budget's enacted, um, two things can flow from that, a reconciliation process where you do actual legislation pursuant to the budget, and then uh, 12 appropriations bills. Now, the, the, the spending the government does on a discretionary basis basis. Uh, this is discretionary means things that aren't mandatory like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. That's that's mandatory spending. On the discretionary side, we have grant programs, um, the DOD. Uh, we have, we have uh, sort of everything that's not an entitlement on the discretionary spending. So that's broken up into 12 bills. The, the House and Senate are meant to be working on those um, all spring and summer. And of course, appropriations expire at the end of the fiscal year. It, on September 30th every year. Um, we've got a little bit of a, um, a shortened process this year. The um, work on fiscal year 18 didn't begin until appropriations were wrapped up uh, nearly two-thirds of the way through fiscal year 17 for that year's spending. We finished that on April 28th with the passage of an omnibus. Um, so um, this week, 
the House has uh, is started the appropriations process in the subcommittee. They're working on military construction and veterans affairs. Now, let me just say one more thing on this. Uh, there are six weeks left to go before August recess. The House wants to um, finish their work on appropriations before August recess so there can be negotiations with the Senate in September. Six weeks, you've got to have 12 bills go through subcommittee, 12 bills go through committee, and 12 bills go through the floor. This week, the first of six weeks, they're doing one bill in one subcommittee. Um, That's a lot of work still to be done. Looks like they're gearing up for an omnibus rather than an honest um, regular order process. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that. Yeah. And I also was reading today that Minukin, did I get his name correct? Uh, he said that the government had enough money to pay its bills through September only. Uh, how much does that worry you considering the slow yeah, so the slow I, process that, the, that they're moving at? Uh, I didn't see that quote, but I, I, yeah. I think what he's referring to is the debt ceiling. Yeah. Uh, so um, the Treasury Secretary is, of course, responsible for paying our bills. Um the debt ceiling sets the limit that uh, that we can spend. So no matter uh, how much money Congress has appropriated, it's still mm-hmm. subject to the debt ceiling. Um, over the past month, the deadline for the debt ceiling has changed quite a bit. Right. Uh, I think uh, earlier this spring, there was an understanding that it, it would get us through September. And then uh, the timeline was bumped up a little bit. And mm-hmm. um, due to some tax receipts issues, they thought maybe we'd need to handle the debt ceiling before August recess. But it sounds like you're saying there's a quote out there that uh, um, w- we, uh, we could go into September without a, a debt ceiling adjustment. Yeah, well, so this is per the Washington Post, but it said the government has enough money to pay its bills only through September, says the Trump administration. So, um, Well, here's what's happening on the debt ceiling, and it, it, this is a stupid policy. It used to be that the debt ceiling was an actual number, right. uh, say $15 trillion. That's the maximum amount we're going to go into debt. A few years ago, they switched from having an actual number, having an actual mm-hmm. ceiling, to suspending the debt limit until a, a date certain in the future. So you pick January 1st, and, and the way that the law then reads is um, there will be no debt ceiling until January 1st, and on that date, the debt ceiling will become however much debt we've accrued up until January 1st. If you do it like that, it gives the Treasury Department leeway to employ extraordinary measures, um, to kind of finagle. Um, you'd have to talk to an accountant about exactly how this is done. This is the, the, the type of things that scares us everyday Americans. What, what, what is an extraordinary measure when it comes to our debt? But anyways, um, to stretch that out. And, and okay. so that's what allows the, the administration, the Treasury Department to kind of set the date that Congress needs to adjust the debt ceiling. Uh, unfortunately, um, Secretary Mnuchin has been calling for a clean debt ceiling increase. Uh, again, I think that's a stupid policy. That that's um, that's that's basically punting on first down. Um, you know, a, a, the debt ceiling is is meant to be a reminder that we've spent more than we meant to spend, and we need to slow down our spending. A clean debt ceiling increase means we're going to increase the debt ceiling with without attaching any sort of, of spending adjustment, spending reform, budget reform, spending cuts. We're just going to ignore that credit card bill this month and, and, and keep on spending like there's no tomorrow. 
and 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 that's alarming. Clean sounds good, but in reality, it's it's really irresponsible. So I'm glad that um, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney has said he wants to see some some real spending reforms on the debt ceiling. I think the conservatives in Congress are keen to see that happen. Uh, but again, they're running out of time. I, yeah. You know what I was saying about the work they have to do this summer. That's just for appropriations. They've got to do the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. They're still working on Obamacare. They've got tax reform. Uh, in the future, there's a, a, a list of things that are expiring um, at the end of September, including the FAA, um, federal aviation authorization. There's uh, um, a, a whole host of things they've got to do, uh, and, and they're out of time to um, to do whatever it is they've been doing this spring. Okay. Well, so the clock is ticking. I guess we'll see uh, where we end up at the end of July. It's going to be a long, hot summer here in Washington, but I, I would encourage um, conservatives like like you all listening to this podcast to to pay special attention to the debt ceiling, to, to pay special attention to how the Republican majority um, handles the spending issue on appropriations bills. Uh, like I said, they've got six weeks, um, but if they keep doing these last-minute omnibuses where you've mm-hmm. got Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer negotiating what will get the Democrats on board, we're not going to see... The promise fulfilled um, from this Republican majority and Republican in the White House. Um, spending is the only must-pass thing, but let's keep in mind, we've got Republicans in the majority in the House, Republicans in the majority in the Senate, and a Republican in the White House. We don't need to be focused on just those must-pass bills like the spending, yeah. although uh, that's important. We've, we've also got Obamacare to repeal. We've got um, an overly burdensome tax system to work on. So it's a big agenda. Uh, it were the Republican Party made some big promises, uh, and they're running out of time to fulfill them. So th- this is sort of a make or break moment uh, for this bunch of Republicans here in Washington. It's their majority uh, to uh, to act on or not, and uh, we're, we're certainly paying close attention here at Heritage. We've got a lot of um, a lot of material going over from Heritage mm-hmm. to the Hill. Certainly, our mandate um, is playing a big role as they set the agenda. But uh, as all these issues arise, we're sending papers over there left and right trying to help them get this figured out all right well we'll keep an eye on that one uh thanks so much for joining us at mass ave today uh be sure to check us out on itunes and subscribe and we'll talk to you all next week hi this is rob bluey vice president of publishing and editor-in-chief of the daily signal if you liked hearing about the issues that washington's not discussing check out underreported a brand new video series from The Daily Signal looking at other issues that the mainstream media forgot to mention. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on heritage.org today. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. Check out Blueprint for Balance, a federal budget. This Heritage Foundation budget plan balances the budget within seven years and cuts spending by more than $10 trillion. To find it, go to heritage.org and search for budget or spending.